Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Generation Squeeze's Hard Truths podcast. My name is Umer. I am the Knowledge to Action Lead with Gen Squeeze. I'm chatting today with Andrea Long, our Senior Director of Research and Knowledge Mobilization. Also with us is Gen Squeeze's founder and UBC policy professor, Paul Kershaw. Hi, Andrea and Paul. How are you both doing? Excited to be here. Well, thanks, Umer. I'm actually quite excited about this, and I I was just telling you both that while thinking about this recording, I came up with a framing, which I haven't yet shared with you, and so I'll I'll share it with you as I share it with our audience. But to begin with, of course, we're chatting today about government budgets and our budget analysis work. But like I said, so prior to jumping in, I'm going to take a few minutes to frame our discussion. Uh, And here we are in late October, and this episode will actually be published on Halloween, seems appropriate to frame what we're talking about with that in mind. So I want to use Mary Shelley's classic novel, (laughs) Frankenstein, to help set the stage for for our discussion. Most people are likely familiar. This is a novel about a man named Victor Frankenstein. He's interested in discovering what the source of life is. What is it that leads inanimate objects to become animate, to be able to think, feel, and do things in the course of His research, Frankenstein assembles and gives life to a creature. So what does this have to do with government budgets and the work that we do in analyzing them? So there are three linkages I want to make. First, if we're interested in identifying what the source of life of a state is, I think we clearly have to say that it has to do with the capacity of the state to raise revenue, to create priorities with regards to the functions that it wants to fulfill, and then following through and spending resources and carrying out those functions. In other words, budgets. So as Canadians, if we're aspiring to be active citizens, if we really want to be in touch with what you know, Canada at the core is, what the source of life of our country is, we have to take stock of our government budgets. Second, you know, Frankenstein assembles his creature by gathering various parts, you know, from lots of different places, putting them together in a way that works, you know, despite it being oddly shaped. And our government budgets are kind of like that. And as we'll talk about, the way our our budgets are constructed means that some parts get disproportionately large while others are neglected. And this has a very real impact on how things end up functioning and and not functioning at times. And third, finally, uh, you know, one of the major themes of Mary Shelley's novel what the novel is really about, from my perspective, is the idea that the things that human beings create, you know, whether they're tools, technologies, or systems of organizations, these can often come to have a life of their own. You know, independent of us, they can start acting back on us, right? Like, they're our creatures, but they can act on us in ways that we don't always anticipate, including in ways that are not, not always in harmony with what we initially intended for them to be so and i and what i read in jen squeezes work with budgets is you know we're not saying that bad people are creating these bad budgets it's kind of like this inertia and this kind of uh this this life that our our budgeting processes and and the functions of the state that that have taken and so yeah i kind of want to bring that to the fore as well in in connecting these things so anyway Thanks for... Well, that's quite the metaphor, Omer. That's... I did not think I was coming to Government Budgets 101, a.k.a. Frankenstein. Well, let's jump in. So I guess with, with that framing in mind, maybe let's start with just talking about, like, what is a government budget? Yeah, I can jump in on that one to begin with, Andrew, and then 
hand it over to you. I think at its most fundamental level, you know, going with your first of the three references to the Frankenstein book, is that, you know, as a source of life for our country, budgets are actually about an articulation of our priorities. You know what we really care about as a country, not entirely by what we say in public opinion or by what our political leaders say on a campaign trail. You know what we really care about when we put our proverbial money where our mouth is. And so that's what budgets do. Uh, you can tell, you can see literally numerically, where do we put the most money? what's growing most urgently at this moment. So that's a huge statement about priorities. And then another level below that is not only where are we allocating the revenue that we're collecting as a society, but how are we going about collecting it? And are we collecting enough to pay for what we're wanting to do at this moment? Or are the, you know, is the economy at a time when we're in recession, so we need to invest more than we're bringing in to be, have stimulus? Or are we actually, which we don't do very often these days, going to actually run surpluses that we can save for a rainy day to some degree and pay off some of the deficits and debts we've collected in the past? And that latter theme is also an expression of priorities because it really gets at this key gen squeeze idea of generational reciprocity. Are we going to prioritize making sure right now contemporary Canadians uh, pay for what they want to use fairly and in proportionate to their wealth and affluence and needs? Or are we going to shirk that responsibility and leave it for those who follow in our footsteps? And I think the last way in which I'd say that a budget is about priorities is, you know, thinking about the revenue collection. Like, what do we think it makes sense to raise money from? Often, gents, we let's say, let's tax things we don't want more and tax things we do want less. And so I think sometimes the budgets and where we're raising our revenue can be a statement of like, what do we think is good for society and our economy? And we're going to try and, you know, tax that a little bit less. And what do we think is problematic? And we're going to try and tax that a little bit more. And so I think those are three ways uh, in which budgets are statements of our priorities. Yeah, maybe I'll just add one um, piece to that. I think the priority theme is really key, but I'll just riff a little bit on the idea of the source of life too, because I think the other answer that one might come up with to the source of life of a state is is all of us, actually, like the people who are um, lending their voices, lending their votes, lending their power to oh, that's clever. Uh, elect the people who lead us. So insofar as <laughs> we shape the politics that we end up with, uh, I think that's a key piece we need to keep in mind for budgets too, because I think people are really, well, some people, maybe not enough people, uh, are really focused around elections and who we vote for. And, you know, we may take some time looking at platforms and what are different parties putting on offer for us and what aren't they putting on offer. Um, but budgets are the accountability to those election promises in between our election cycle. So if actually we really, I think, want to see ourselves as, as giving life, giving power uh, to our uh, elected representatives, then budgets are a key place where we can check in and say, hey, I thought they were going to do this. Are they really doing that? And, you know, I thought we were going to ask these people to pay more, or these people to pay less. Are we really doing that? So I'll just throw that piece into the mix of our Halloween theme here. I think that's really good. It's one of those moments like, oh, I wish I'd said that. And I think that it sort of gets to what is sort of the hard truth that we're aiming to share today in no small part on today's episode, which is that we can't solve the systemic problems facing us, whether it's climate change or housing unaffordability or large government debts or, you know, is our healthcare system in crisis, if we're not actually 
shaping those budgets. And so democracy needs to work to influence the budgets well. And that's a lovely way to kind of merge the two themes that we've got right now, but the source of life is the state. What we do, how we use our voices, how we function as good citizens in our democracy, and then it manifests itself in this lifeblood of a document that is the budget. Right. And in following up on on this idea of trying to influence what's in our budgets, I think this connects to my next question. Why are we talking about budgets right now? It's Halloween. Like, I don't see budgets being talked about in the media. I don't see anyone tabling a budget. Why are we talking about it? <laughs> yeah, that's a gr- it's a great point, uh, Umer, and I think does connect nicely back to what we've been talking about. So, you know, kind of like elections, right? We, whenever budgets tend to be viewed as a bit of point in time, and it tends to be sort of February, March, April-ish that governments are tabling their budgets for the year. And, you know, that may result in a few days of a media cycle um, when everybody's rushing around and saying, hey, what are they committing to spend money on and what's missing from this budget? But in reality, budgets are huge and and it's a year-round process involved in, you know, the kinds of consultations, the kind of policy design work, the questions about balancing how much money we have and how we're going to spend it across a really wide range of possible priorities. Uh, And all that stuff starts months and months and months in advance. Really, actually, it probably never ends. Um, So if you want to actually influence how governments are thinking about their budgets, what they're choosing to prioritize. You can't wait until they're actually dropping in the public and in the media. You have to start months in advance uh, when governments are doing that initial thinking about where they want to invest and how that's going to align with what people are telling them are their priorities. So if you think about how Gen Squeeze operates and thinking about shaping budgets is part of the lifeblood of our organization, It is in that February, March, and April period where people will often hear us giving analyses of provincial and federal budgets. And those analyses have a retrospective and a prospective component. So retrospective, looking backwards, they are a reflection of like, how well did we and others influence the budget according to the evidence about what policy change do we need and what values do we want to see acted upon? And so we comment on that at the time, trying to shape the media cycle of the day to say, is this a strong budget? Is it a weaker budget? Of course, it's way more complex than that. There's strong elements and there are weak elements every time. So we're trying to bring those to the fore. But the moment we're talking about what was in the budget, we're immediately then launching our activities to be influencing what comes in the next one. And partly we influence that in terms of like how do we, you know how well received is this budget? And you know we can kind of compete for airtime to shape an analysis um, that will then influence the discourse going forward in the country, which will have impact on what future budgets do. I think this, I think about the 2022 federal budget, for instance, it, you know, the federal liberals actually, even while on their watch, housing and affordability has, has, has deteriorated. It's gotten worse than before. And yet it's also the case that, um, you know, their, their housing plans for this particular government are more nuanced and complex than we've had in the past. And we walk that balance and we are still saying, oh, but this most recent, it didn't go far enough. It's missing the intergenerational tensions. And it was shortly after that where our finance minister and deputy prime minister then actually acknowledged in media addresses she gave that the housing system reflects an intergenerational injustice. Now that 
our comments on the 2022 budget, our Frank, you know, contributed to that context where she then makes that claim. And then we can use her framing of that to say, yes, well done. That's great. You've acknowledged that. And now how do we see that recognition play out into budget 2023? And so we then give some time over the summer as everyone takes a break and we start to ramp up again in September and October and November and December because the budget's starting to get quite baked by January. It's getting really well cooked by February and then it's hard to change, uh, you know, come that time period. So, yeah, we have to be paying attention all year round, really, and, and trying to intervene in this process of budget creation. That's why we're talking about it now. And, and in fact, in, internally, we talk about it. We've been talking about it before. Then. And so I'm wondering now if we, can, if we can jump to the second sort of linkage then about the various parts of the creature, in, in our case, the budget, and sort of how do we make sense of it? Because, of course, we are a group that's concerned with intergenerational fairness. And so what does that approach, what does our approach and our lens allow us to see what creatures stands before us? Well, that's a great question. I was just sort of, I mean, I guess I kind of see two ways you could go with an answer to that. Like on the one hand, I think you're right about the analogy of the, you know, of diversity of parts and, and budgets have a lot of pieces. And, you know, like we should give governments credit that they have to balance a lot of competing priorities and a lot of competing views about what's important. And, you know, you're not going to make everybody happy all the time. So so there's that kind of dimension. But at the same time, I think, you know, Gen Squeeze, because we're taking this cross-cutting lens of generational fairness to our work, I think an important part of what we do is try and say, like, hey, you might not think there's a lot in common between housing and climate change and childcare and, you know, what we spend on preventing ill health versus treating illness. But those things are linked by the common thread of generational fairness and how we've structured our generational systems to promote or not the outcomes that we're looking for. So in that vein, like thinking about the things that bring our analysis together, I think there are like sort of four important themes that if you take a look at any of Gen Squeeze's budget analyses, really for the past uh, several years, you'll see pieces of these themes in them. Um, so maybe I'll just quickly talk about those four, and then I'm sure you have stuff to add to that, Paul. Um, so the first one, of course, is super topical right now, and we've been talking about it for uh, over a decade now, is, wow, we need to make life more affordable. Well-being and quality of life for younger people in particular has been declining, thanks to things like declining wages and rising costs for housing and childcare and other important things people need. So what can we do to make life more affordable uh, for those folks? The caveat on our discussion about affordability, and this is also super relevant right now in the conversations we're having around inflation, is that we cannot tackle affordability. We can't address the squeeze on our wallets by scaling back our commitments to climate action, and especially around some of the measures we've courageously put in place in Canada around pricing pollution. The enormous long-term costs of climate change really underscore that trying to save money by scaling back gasoline taxes or eliminating gasoline taxes or not ramping up the carbon tax as we've committed to is really a false economy. And of course, it's intergenerationally unjust, given that inaction today is just going to amplify the burden on younger people who are already facing the majority of climate risks. 
The third theme is around uh, reconnecting home prices with local earnings. So at Gen Squeeze, if you've looked at our work, you know we talk a lot about housing as sort of a core issue in uh, generational injustice in Canada, uh, how rising home prices have locked and a growing number of young people out of home prospects of home ownership altogether, while growing the wealth of folks who already own homes, and especially folks who have owned homes for many years who bought into the market decades ago. So we talk a lot about how we need home prices to stall. Happily, we're actually seeing a little bit of that now, and that's a topic for another podcast, but we need home prices to stall so that earnings can catch up, because right now the gap between those two things is huge and insurmountable for individual people trying to find their way in a housing market. And then the last theme is around accountability. So that's a bit of a that's a bit of an amal- Frankenstein amalgam in and of itself. Um, but we talk about you know some of the uh, some of the gaps in how government collects data, how they use data to understand where spending is going and who's receiving it. Uh, so we point to a few important things we think it's important for government to address in just the way the data it uses to construct its budget. In particular, we talk about. Why don't we actually consider how spending is allocated by age? We actually were successful in convincing uh, the government of Canada to introduce the first age distribution analysis of spending in its budget. Great. That was a good first step forward. Unfortunately, it's not, you know, the best analysis. Maybe it's a... No, it's not done adequately. (laughs) Yeah, we've not not maybe fully breathed life into that particular creature that we've tried to create, but there's something to build from. So that's really important. Uh, And most recently, I think we're talking a lot more about, wow, we need to understand uh, in the pandemic, post-pandemic pressures, how much are we spending on treating illness after the fact versus trying to help people be healthy and stay healthy through preventive measures and how we're measuring our inflation, which is our key, like, you know, a key theme in, in Canadian dialogue today. So maybe I'll stop there. That was my long answer there, Paul. So. No, well, it needs to be it needs to be long because Gen Squeeze isn't the kind of organization that invites people in to focus on one particular policy change. And I think that this comes back to the way in which you may have framed the second theme of the, you know, the Frankenstein conversation. Like, how do the various parts of this budget creature fit together? And Andrea, I think you did a really lovely job of describing the various budget parts, you know, the affordability in terms of child care, housing, and a range of other issues, you know, fighting climate change, making sure that we're fixing the housing crisis, um, and then the range of accountability measures that, you know, help us do these other things. And if anyone comes to the GenSqueeze.ca website, which, by the way, is like a new version now, so you should. It's so exciting. Um, you'll see at the very top, we, we we point out that people will, you know, you know the symptoms of a bunch of problems. You know, the childcare crisis, housing crisis, climate crisis, now healthcare crisis, and so on. And our group is looking at the underlying disease. And so if the... Government budgets are sort of the heartbeat of our nation. You know, is that nation as healthy as we'd like it to be? Or is it suffering from a range of problems? And too often, we are focusing on trying to fix the system, symptoms, fix the symptoms, but we're missing the underlying disease, which is why Jen Squee says, we have this, you know, the climate crisis, the housing crisis, the underinvestment in childcare, government debts, etc. You know, underinvestment in the things that make us well, and then we spend more to treat illness after the fact. They all reflect a common intergenerational dis- uh, tension, a dysfunctional intergenerational system. That dysfunctional intergenerational system then interacts with a range of other isms, whether it's racism and classism or sexism, etc. But we need to add to our 
focus on analyzing budgets from this generational lens. And so that's how we bring to the budget creature, which has many parts, and it's a hard document to create. And no matter what you think of any particular government at any time, there are a range of noble elected and bureaucratic people putting together this heartbeat of our country. And sometimes it comes together better and sometimes it doesn't, but it's still a really big document to work on. And the more that we can get our decision makers to view how the various parts fit together from this generational lens, the more we don't have to play whack-a-mole with childcare or housing or climate crisis, the more we can actually say, oh, let's get to the underlying disease and we will vaccinate it or vaccinate against that and we'll simultaneously solve a lot of these problems. That is so much of the Gen Squeeze mission and quest. What you just said, Paul, made me realize there's another linkage between Mary Shelley's novel and government budgets. They're about the same length. They are? <laughs> the federal budget, the most recent one, is more than 200 pages. Um, yeah, and come on, we analyzed in one single day in a budget law. The 2021 budget was 700 700 pages. We have to go in a budget locket for a couple of hours and come out to say things that are sensible. Ay, ay, ay. Well, and so with that in mind, I guess, what are we really asking our listeners uh, and those people who follow our work? Are we really suggesting to them that they go in and download the budget document and look through it line by line? Or You mean they don't already? <laughs> I think everybody who was on the podcast just clicked stop right there. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're asking. <laughs> That's really the, the reaction one would have, right? And I don't, what I would say, I guess, in response to my question, if I... <laughs> Tell us. Help us out. Well, it's just that I, I think we're asking people in part, and this is a conversation we've, we've been having internally, is, is about trust and and trying to build trust with our network, within our network. And, and so I guess one of the things we're asking our listeners and, and those who are in our network is to trust us in, in the work that we do in analyzing that, the budget documents that come out and that we can facilitate that engagement. I guess I provided a, that answer, but maybe then I can ask in addition to that, we're, we're one source of budget analysis, right? Um, there's lots of sources, and people should, of course, make use of uh, various sources. Then it shouldn't just rely on us. But what what are we really providing when we're yeah. when we're doing our analysis? Very enthusiastic about that question, Andrew. Can I jump in first? Yes, yes, go ahead. So, when we started Gen Squeeze a decade or even a decade ago, we had this really common refrain where we said, you know, younger Canadians are squeezed by higher costs, less time. A deteriorating environment in large government debts, even though the economy is producing more prosperity than ever before. And, and that less time is a huge part of our analysis. We know people are time squeezed. And so the prospects of thinking that people are going to have the time to download their federal and provincial budgets, each of which are going to be hundreds of pages, and be able to make sense and meaning of all the details is just not a reasonable expectation for anyone. It's, that's not what a healthy democracy demands of people. But it does then demand that there are organizations like ours that will put in the effort to try and save people the time and give meaningful interpretations of what those complex documents are sharing. Now, in many respects, our media has an important role to play on that front. And I would argue that 
um, because media to some degree has sort of lost its business model. It's harder to, you know, run newspapers and TV stations by comparison with the past. And so they are much more prone to having to rely on the media release where the governments give you the bullet points that they want to focus on. And one of the things that I can tell people routinely is a key observation when you actually dig into the numbers is that the bullet points don't direct people's attention to where the big action in the budget is. So let me give you, for instance, at the federal level, the largest increase in new government spending each year for the last many, many years that we've been analyzing the budget has been growing old age security. And never in the media release does that actually get a bullet point. Now, there's a whole range of complicated reasons for why that's unfolding, and it's not entirely because, you know, our talented bureaucrats and elected officials are trying to pull the, the wool over eyes. It actually is the case that many of our elected officials don't even know because they're reliant on the, the media releases, etc. And so groups like Jen Squeeze are saying... What's happening in the media discourse, even what our own elected officials uh, are, you know, able to know and share, is often a partial piece. And you know, you, we're asking people to to trust us. You're right, Umair. This is so important. We're digging more deeply into the actual numbers and hoping to offer people some credible information that they can then use to interpret the media and to absolutely go and draw other sources. But one of the value adds, a value proposition we are trying to offer our listeners and the people who ally with us in our network by joining at gensqueeze.ca is we want to be a one-stop shop. You can come to us for credible, evidence-informed analysis about themes that matter to you around affordability, especially if you're the generation raising young kids, about childcare and parental leave and work-life balance and housing and the fears and pressures we have around climate change. And wow, the debts that we're inheriting. You can come to us for that kind of information and we are going to give you a one-stop shop to get it. Yeah, maybe I could just add one thing to that, Umer, because I'm thinking about your third, sorry, I'm jumping ahead, thinking about your third Frankenstein connection about, you know, we could bring things to life that then take take on a life of their own that we don't fully anticipate. And I think there are actually, like, I think there are good parallels with budget process for that. And thinking about Paul's point about how too much analysis maybe tends to stop at the talking points that both governments want to hear, and then I think other parties want their supporters and followers to hear. And and I think for for many folks, you know, myself included, you could listen to what different parties have to say about what a budget is or isn't doing, what a government is or isn't doing, and think like, wow, are we even talking about the same thing? Like, is this the same creature that um, has been brought to life here? Or is it a different creature, depending on what your disposition is on where money should be allocated or whether the government and the budget have hit the priorities that you think are most important. And, you know, I think it's fine to have that kind of um, disagreement, but it also can get, I think it makes really challenging for, you know, the average consumer of media, the person who has an average level of interest in politics uh, to be like, well, you know, when I hear one person saying this and the other person saying like the complete opposite of this, how am I supposed to cut through that and really understand uh, what is happening? Um, So I think, you know, at Gen Squeeze, we do try 
and cut through that. We place a, a lot of emphasis on our evidence-based and nonpartisan analysis. So we do not approach our analysis of budgets because, you know, we are leaning left or right on uh, what we think is the direction to go. We say, what does the evidence tell us we need to be doing to solve the big problems we're facing? And to what extent are the proposed measures meeting that mark? So I think we can... You know, we can help people maybe take the creatures that different uh, folks who are analyzing the budget and um, who are bringing to life those different creatures and try and make sense of make sense of them and say like, you know, here's here's what when you delve into the actual numbers is really happening in terms of spending decisions and who where the money's going and and who is or isn't receiving it. And just to riff off that one more step. I think that you asked as you mayor, you know, what are we wanting people to do? So on the one hand, we said, you don't need to download the entire budget, like draw on groups like ours to, you know, give you an in-depth analysis, hopefully succinctly and in a meaningful way that you can digest in, you know, the reasonable time it takes to read like a 15 minute analysis or what have you. And then though, um, we are asking people to, spread the word, share that analysis, because often it is the case that the ideas that Jen Squeeze is bringing forth, we we aren't always cracking through on budget day to have that shape the media analysis of the budget as much as we would like. But if our followers, our listeners of the podcast are hearing hearing the episode following the budget and sharing it around or sharing our written analysis around, that then helps to create, you know, the ecosystem where people are hearing the, uh, the more nuanced interpretations that we are able to bring. And remember, we've talked a lot about there being problems, whether it's housing unaffordability, child kind of unaffordability, climate change, the healthcare system in crisis, large government deficits and debts, even when we're not in recession. But we offer at GenSqueeze solutions. At GenSqueeze.ca, the first tab you'll see in our website is solutions frameworks for all of these issues. And we interpret federal and provincial budgets in the light of those solutions frameworks. So we're looking for evidence in the budgets. Are people acting on the solutions? And Andrew is right. We are so evidence-based driven. But we are also very transparent about the values that drive us. And so we have our goals for housing affordability and childcare affordability and family affordability generally and climate change. And we tell you our goal. We tell you the values or the principles that are guiding us to those goals. And then the evidence-based policy options that bring those values and principles to life. That's how we go into then dissecting a budget. It happens in two parts. First, in this crazy environment of going into a budget lockup, um, maybe that term doesn't mean much. Maybe we should dig into that a little bit more. But literally, we're like sent into a room. You don't have your cell phones. You can't communicate with anyone. You're there for a few hours to try and get some advanced take on the budget. You go through the hundreds of pages. Literally, I have words that I'm searching for with my search function in these PDF documents. Thank God they're no longer paper documents. Much easier to search when they're PDFs. And then you throw together your analysis, hopefully written somewhat eloquently and not too confusing a manner. You send it off to your team as soon as you get your cell phone so that they can do some extra like eyes on it and like, where did you get the math wrong or screw up the analysis? And then you throw yourself into the foray of like a media scrum competing with dozens and dozens of other groups to get 22 seconds of a media hit on the 6 p.m. news and the national news at 10. That's what it looks like on the day. Then you exhale. 
And then you can come back with a little more of a sober analysis over the next weeks to start digging in even further. And that's the kind of work that Jen Squeeze is doing for people, um, you know, day in, week in, month in, month out. We're constantly going back to the budgets and seeing how they break down in a whole range of ways. You know, one of the things that we have pointed out about government budgets is that they have been consistently underinvesting in younger generations, right? And so the fact that we kind of highlight is that since 1976, spending per person has increased you know, four times faster for people who are retirees than for people who are under the age of 45. It's 45, right? Not 30? Yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. You got the stat. Bang on. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, bring it back again to the third linkage I wanted to make with Frankenstein, the life that this creature has taken uh, despite our intentions. Okay, so this is a kind of an inertia that's, you know, been building for these all of these decades without the people who are sort of organizing budgets year after year realizing it. You know, and so like what is happening there? Can you explain like what is going on that's underpinning that disproportion in spending when it comes to uh, younger and older Canadians? So, Umer, uh, multiple times now you've talked, you've used the word inertia as if there's sort of inertia in, in the budget making process. And I would say actually the, mm, the elements of our, our budget that become deformed, I don't want to say monstrous, I think I'll say deformed, um, actually respect, reflect institutional momentum. And so the two parts of budgets at the provincial and federal level that are growing most rapidly, most urgently in terms of monetary increases on an annual basis are old age security and medical care. Now, these are both institutions that are oriented toward investing later in our life course. You know, old age security, you got the, you know, it's got that label literally in its title. And we know in medical care, we use the major, we use more medical care as we experience the human reality of becoming more frail when we age. And so these are parts of the human experience that we need to plan for and adapt for. So our, we built these important systems. But now there are strong institutional forces to defend medical care, to defend old age security, both in terms of lobby organizations, think like, you know, the CARP Canadian Association of Retired Persons, think about like doctor, uh, the Canadian Medical Association for medical care, and they both do the noble work of protecting these, um, these services and benefits that people are depending on, and they simultaneously argue for those institutional interests. But by contrast, like we, we don't have a well-functioning, you know, childcare system. So there's no real childcare institution yet. We're kind of still trying to build this system from a patchwork of, you know, pieces that have existed over the uh, the past. But they don't yet form a system, so it doesn't have institutional momentum. We didn't have a national housing strategy until, uh, not, you know, just a few years ago, and so there was no institutional momentum for housing. You know, climate change, we've been fighting over whether it's a real problem facing us or not. And only until recently, you know, have we started pricing pollution and creating institutional momentum for that. And so two things happen. Uh, and political scientists, there's a whole long, decades-long literature about institutionalism in political science, that institutions can take on political momentum and they keep marching with on the trajectory that they're going until some major disruption happens. So that is why it's not so much inertia that is making old age security get longer, larger, and medical care get larger. It's because it's actually momentum. 
And then it is partly the case that our elected officials aren't getting um, the information they need because actually now we're getting so into the weeds of it. But there's a bit of a dispute between Treasury and finance departments about what they're supposed to report. I won't go into that in any more detail, but there's just confusion about whose role is to report what. And typically, the finance department will say, oh, our role is only to report on some new change in policy that the government is announcing. But our increases to say something like old age security and the way in which we're using medical care doctors dollars are often just a reflection of decisions we've made in the past, and they have consequences year over year over year. And we don't talk about the consequences of the previous decisions that we've made. And so that's why when I go to MPs, MPPs, MLAs, and I you know, take meetings after the budget, and I draw their attention to the tables at the end, they're often surprised to see what actually the math is showing in terms of what's growing more quickly than other. Because the hardworking bureaucrats are actually right now in it's oftentimes a little bit in a tussle about what they're supposed to share. And actually, I think they're, we need to help our bureaucrats do a better job at this moment of getting to our, our elected decision makers' attention some of the big changes that are happening in the budget. Because it's right now getting buried in the details. In fact, if people go to our Bad Budget Bunny video, you'll see me holding up a, pa a page with, with this table A1.6. I might not be quite getting the table right. But that's my point. You have to like go find frigging table A1.6 on page 100 and 100 and something to find actually the, the right information that really summarizes what we most need our elected decision makers to, to see and to hear and to think about and to judge and to question and to probe and to prod and bring different parties to say, we you know, we'd have dif different takes on whether this is good or bad. It's not that one particular take has to always be right. I think it would be great if we had more ideological dialogue between our different parties on the pros and cons of this summary of the budget. Yeah, maybe I'll just throw in one more thing there. I know we're uh, getting tight on time, so um, we'll turn it back to you to wrap up, Boomer. But um, I do think, so I absolutely uh, agree with what Paul said about the, um, the challenges of tracking, like, existing spending versus, you know, what governments like to call new spending. Um, and we do tend to focus on the flashy new little announcements, even if they're relatively small in the context of uh, a government budget overall. I think the other thing, though, that drives the level of engagement with the big picture of where we're putting our money is the degree to which where we're putting our money aligns with sort of our broader cultural beliefs and values about what's important. Um, and so, you know, I think in Canada, for example, I just use healthcare, I use, well, which Jen Squeeze, we tend to call medical care. Um, you know, we, re we, we love medical care, right? We, we think that's a defining feature of being Canadian. It's how we articulate differences between ourselves and, and our neighbors to the South. Um, we, we think it's a real point of pride and identity that we have a publicly funded medical care system. Uh, and that's great. And we should have that and we should defend it. But it's sort of beloved status of medical care means that there's really very little debate about whether or not it's just a simply a good thing to keep putting more and more money into medical care. And, you know, that actually should be something we should talk about more because simply putting more money into illness treatment doesn't in fact align with the evidence about what creates health. Uh, we know that there's a lot of evidence 
saying that, you know, it's the social conditions, the conditions into which we're born, grow, live, work, and age um, that, you know, play a big role, bigger than medical care, uh, in determining how healthy and well we are throughout our lives. You know, we don't tend to have that conversation because our view of what health is tends to focus on the medical care conversation. So I think those sorts of things really play into our budget conversation as well. And I think similarly around Paul's point about, you know, old age security and that spending at the federal level, um, you know, really important. We all have older folks um, in our lives who we love and we want to support. But, you know, we do have this really persistent cultural belief that seniors are the group who tend to be most, you know, quote unquote, vulnerable, that seniors are more likely to be poor. And, you know, there was a point in Canada's history when that was the case. And in fact, We've done quite a lot to fix it. So it's not the case anymore. But that action hasn't disrupted the sort of cultural belief about the vulnerability of seniors. And, and, you know, that drives, I think, a general sense that investing more in the well-being of seniors, investing more in the income support for seniors simply are just an unconditionally good thing. So, you know, I'm certainly not wanting to suggest that we shouldn't make those investments, but I think we do need more space among elected officials and among Canadians more generally for a broader conversation uh, about what we what we value and the best pathways to actually get that through our budgets and through other tools. And in that conversation, we would then add another cultural component where when, when people are running for office, more and more they feel like they need to offer us more benefits and services, so promise us more but without having the conversation about, okay, if we're going to do more through government, how are we going to raise enough revenue to cover those costs so we don't leave unpaid bills for our kids and grandchildren? And that dialogue isn't very nuanced right now in Canadians' public dialogue. It's not that nuanced enough amongst Canadian citizens. And so groups like Gen Squeeze have to help you know, ask our listeners, our followers, our networks to think about that themselves deeply, share that with others so that we can grow more of a public dialogue around how do we pay fairly for the important services and benefits that we know we need to rely on government to deliver because it's not economically efficient to deliver them through the market space. There's a couple of things that you said, Paul, that uh, I want to highlight. First of all, the distinction between inertia and momentum. You're right. As someone with an engineering background, I should know that inertia is the resistance that something has to movement, whereas momentum is the tendency of the thing to keep moving. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, and I'll think more about the inertia. Maybe there's an inertia component I'm not thinking enough about. No, no, no. I I just confuse the two. It's just a, a slip, <laughs> uh, and which is embarrassing. Um, the other thing you said, Paul, about insisting that you know the parts of the budget that we're sort of highlighting, and this isn't. We're not saying that it's monstrous that you know may be deformed and and that i think connects really well to mary shelley frankenstein's creature is not a monster that's really the key of the the whole story and what we're talking about you know really it paints seems to paint a scary picture right as the book does of the creature but uh, but then when you actually take a look when you actually take the time to to figure it out and go through it you know you find that the way the way it is is for a specific set of reasons, and uh, we have to intervene in certain ways to to get us to a place where where the creature is perhaps more noble and not as deformed. Happy Halloween, everybody! And uh, if anybody chooses to dress up as a government budget for Halloween, make sure you let us know. Maybe that was that's a trend we could lead with. <laughs> no, 
I can see it going viral already. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to a special Halloween edition of the Hard Truths podcast. We hope you found our way of framing the discussion about government budgets to be interesting and perhaps even compelling. If you have any feedback or thoughts about the show, please do share them with us. You can do that by writing to info at gensqueeze.ca. Also, be on the lookout for a budgets-related campaign we're going to be launching soon. It'll involve a letter-writing drive and will quite possibly begin within the next week, depending on how quickly we can get things organized. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you again soon.